changing academic life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. My guest today is Marcus Folt, a professor in interactive and visual design in the Creative Industries Faculty at Queensland University of Technology in Australia. He founded the Urban Informatics Research Lab there and has recently moved on to become the Interim Director of the QUT Design Lab. Marcus visited Vienna while he was on his sabbatical and to speak at a summer school here. He shares some really interesting experiences about building a research niche at the intersection of disciplines and deliberately choosing to publish across diverse venues in contrast to what he calls the monolithic Kai approach. He also shares his experiences in building a new lab and creating a lab identity and culture. And he talks about the value of community service based on his recent experience in chairing the DISC conference. He ends with an interesting call to move away from counting beans to having conversations about beans. Marcus, thank you very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And you know, people will be getting scared about coming to visit Vienna now. Because they will be invited by because you inadvertently yes. knowing, yes. yes. No, but it's great. Thank yes. you for, uh, very much for yeah. the opportunity. Okay. This and is your sabbatical. This trip. is my part of a sabbatical. Mm. What's the sabbatical giving you? What's the value of the sabbatical for you? The sabbatical um, for you? Well, perhaps first I should say that um, sabbatical at our university is called officially long professional development leave. Right. And the long is interpreted as anything um, above 20 days. So it's not the very um, luxurious experience where you get an entire year off. Um, my um, long PDL project has been approved for four months. So I've been traveling since early June and mm-hmm. I'll be back in October um, at QUT. And it gives me that, that ability to, well, really in practical terms, to put an away message mm-hmm. on my email and yeah. say, I'm traveling, I'm yeah. on long PDL, I'm on sabbatical, I'm away. That's one big difference it makes. Another one is that I continue to receive my salary so I can um, continue to work on matters of um, projects, of, of um, things that uh, are still ticking over, like PhD supervisions. Just this morning I was um, Skyping with one of my PhD students. So it's not, as some of my students actually think, it's not a holiday. A lot of people think, oh, great, you, you got a four-month holiday approved. It's, it's not like that. Um, so I've but been, it does give you more control. Yeah. It, before, like earlier this year, I had a million to-do items, a million deadlines. I was working on a whole bunch of different projects all at the same time, lots of multitasking. Mm. Whereas now, um, a lot of them have been handed over temporarily to, to other people, looking after them in an acting position. And I pretty much just have um, one task. I'm supposed to be writing a book with my colleague uh, Martin Brinsko in, in Aarhus. And so we've been working on ideas for that, on the structure for it, thinking about what to cover, what material, the table of contents, talking to others about ideas. And so um, it's quite nice to actually have time to think again. Yes, that's uh, becoming increasingly uh, luxury, it seems, in academia, time to think. Just, it probably is important for people just to hear a little bit about your background, just to be able to put, put all this in context. So how did you get from Germany to Brisbane? Okay. What, what sort of degree background do you have? 
So I, um, I studied computer science back in 1997, but even at that time, it was at a university um, not that well known in the Black Forest called Furtwangen. Now, that place um, started a new degree program um, around that time, actually much earlier, in 1989, I think was the first intake of students, around media informatics. So the combination of computer science and media studies, if you like, very broadly speaking. And that program involved um, a very mixed repertoire of uh, curriculum that included psychology and design and audio-video production and programming and uh, the list goes on. So it, it had elements of human-computer interaction, but it went even beyond that. It was also including some business elements around accounting and marketing and project management. And then it had all sorts of science-y elements around the psychology and physics and maths. And it had practical elements. It had two internships and it had um, collaborations and projects with, with industry partners. Another feature of that program was to do a um, study abroad semester. And so I combined the internship and the abroad semester to be able to go away for one year. So in 2000, um, I went to Australia for this um, study abroad year. And at that time, it was just the idea to, to go there for one year. And... The, um, the story goes that we were looking for opportunities of where to go. Our faculty had all sorts of different um, uh, collaborative arrangements, but they were given out on a, on a random basis. You had to kind of put your name um, into, into, you know, drop it into a hat, and there was a lottery in a way. And we said, no, 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 we want to really determine where we want to go. And Floyd Muller, who you would probably know, um, by now a uh, professor at RMIT um, heading the Exertion Games Lab in Melbourne. In Melbourne. He just um, came back from Australia and he did a uh, Bachelor of Multimedia at Griffith University. And um, there were advanced standing arrangements for our degree to be recognized there. So we were able to enter into the third year and graduate after only one year of study. And so we went there in 2000 and did that. I graduated with a Bachelor of Multimedia from Griffith. And that also enabled me to apply for permanent residency. So then I came back the following year. I did my master's there in media communication studies. So I switched fields a little bit and was all of a sudden surrounded by completely different um, folk. I was surrounded by anthropologists and cultural studies people and media communication studies, political science. Um, and I actually liked that because I was able to see the ability for me to apply my knowledge from media informatics and computer science into this area of um, the social sciences. Uh, and they liked me because I was able to build websites and there was lots of demand for just building research websites. Uh, and then in 2002, they offered me a PhD scholarship. And I still remember my first proposal that I submitted for the actual topic was just so vague and weird. It was something from, from e-commerce to e-society. It was something to look at, you know, the way that everyone talked about the ability of the internet to enable the death of distance, to buy things online, to have distant education, telework. You could do any, anything from at home. And I thought, oh, that's, that sounds like not a very... Um, you know, desirable future. And so I was interested in place and that eventually evolved in a PhD between 2002 and 2005 where I looked at the opposite of the de death of distance, which is how the internet and, and ICT could um, enhance, have an impact on 
and, and um, um, change the way that people interact in place, mm -hmm. which is these days uh, a very common and ubiquitous topic. In fact, Ubicomp and ubiquitous computing is all about computing coming out of home and work yes. and spilling out and over into all, all other aspects of life. And so at the time that Bill Clinton and Al Gore were still talking about the information superhighway, I was interested in the opposite, as in community networks. I was reading Doug Schuler and um, the work by, by Barry Wellman and Keith Hampton by um, what happened in the Blacksburg Electronic Village at, yes. at uh, Virginia Tech and all of those kinds of early examples of community networks, mm -hmm. Howard Rheingold and the well and the list goes on. So you got accepted into the PhD program on this sort of hand wavy, or, you know, the distant, you know, sort of a life, the universe and everything. Of <laughs> yeah. And it was in the course of the PhD process that you found your niche. Yes, so I, I looked for, um, maybe not actively, but I, I was dabbling in various fields. So I was uh, housed in a media communication studies department. In fact, my very first academic conference was a communication policy research forum held in Canberra, which was like the most repulsive thing to go to because it was so dry and, and, and stiff. And I remember my, my name tag said, Marcus Ford, PhD student, and as soon as someone read this, they all wanted to dispense advice. So they asked me, what's your theoretical framework? And it didn't really matter what I said, because they would always say, well, you need to be looking at Foucault, or you need to be looking at um, Habermas theory. My favorite framework. Yes, so it, it was um, very interesting, that very first experience. But from there, I also then um, explored and, and used the PhD opportunity to um, find other communities. So I've been linked up to the action research community, to um, the community informatics community of scholars, to HCI. I went to OSCI for the first time, I think in, when it was in, at UQ in 2003, I believe. It was my first OSCI conference. And um, eventually I, I, I thought of it, and because I had to structure my liter literature review and all the different influences, in these three areas of people, place, technology. And that still sticks with me to this day, that, it's, that I'm interested in, in, in the social, the technical, the spatial, if you like. Um, the way that the social sciences and sociology, cultural studies, um, humanities, etc., cetera, um, think about people. And then the technical is still a continuing interest in, in technology, in Ubicom and HCI, in ICT. And the spatial material is the physical aspect of, of cities, which involves architecture, urban planning, design um, of the built environment. And so the work is um, very much positioned at, at the intersection of these three domains. I was just going to say, it's, it's at the intersection of lots of different disciplinary mm. sort of interests, and, but driven by a concern for community and community building and place yeah, making. Yeah, so increasingly to, to this day, I'm, I'm interested in um, how we can... And I just, at this summer school I, that we had this week here in Vienna, um, I, I showed them this cover of Time magazine from 2006 where you was on the, you know, the person of the year with, with a computer depicting and saying, you know, you are in control of the information age. But that's increasingly questionable of what's going on right now with uh, both uh, online as well as offline, both in the digital as well as in the physical layers of society. And so I'm interested in those questions around governance, um, uh, politics, as well as polity, 
Um, I'm interested in algorithmic culture. I'm interested in the way that these different um, influences can come together to give us a better ability to not just participate, but also think about what's the next step, what comes after participation. Is it, you know, people say it's engagement, but that's a little bit vague. So I'm interested in more forms of, of um, co-creation. In fact, how we can use that, that Time magazine cover of the you and how we, in a way, turn it into a we, where we have scale and impact and an ability to not just have a voice, but actually um, actively um, become agents of change. Can I ask a practical question? How do you keep across all of these different communities and literatures? By um, reviewing a lot. I've been um, a reviewer for a number of conferences and journals, and that's helping me to see different influences. And also my publication strategy is maybe a little bit unusual in that I'm, I'm very much actively rejecting a monolith monolithic approach where... And, and sometimes that can be a strategy, but in my case, the, the strategy is the reverse, to be publishing in various different forums, outlets, conferences. So your strategy is to publish in various different... Exactly. And that sometimes has been problematic. I remember um, um, a, a, a going to, into my performance planning and review with my then supervisor... And she said, oh, what's, you know, this doesn't, this, I can't see a narrative in this. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's, it's, it looks like it's all over the place. And um, she was also after um, far more monographs because that was her background. And so she was after much more like the, the singular contribution to knowledge rather than all these co-authored kind of pieces. And so I needed to, in a way, explain that um, the chronological order wouldn't necessarily reveal a, a, a narrative. I needed to kind of say, well, these are the kinds of things that contributed to, to these particular disciplines. Mm -hmm. But I also think that when you, um, for instance, work in human-computer interaction, um, sometimes a project may not be that novel or original within HCI because we use established methods and we use um, knowledge that has already been... Um, published in journals or conferences. But it might be completely news to another to another community, to urban planners or to people in 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 the medical domain or health. And so I actually then encourage my students to not just think of Kai. Everyone mm -hmm. just goes, oh, you know, there's some labs that are actually optimized around the, the Kai deadline and then when the Kai conference happens. And there's no not even a discussion about it. It's just that's it. Everyone has writing workshops Everyone only thinks about the um, the Sikai two-column layout format. And you, you only go to the ACM digital library to search for references. Mm. And I think that's very limiting. The, the original idea of HCI was to be um, a, um, a, a cross-disciplinary engagement between social sciences and the, the computer sciences. And I think we've lost some of this by, by having this very monolithic um, conference that is now the pinnacle of people's aspirations and it might prevent um, people from thinking about how they can make a contribution to other parts of academia as well as outside academia. And I guess that's also bringing stuff in from other parts of academia because if you go to different conferences and talk with different communities, you yeah. hear different things and yeah. it, it enriches two ways, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so your publication strategy also involves lots of books as well. Was they that are, a deliberate choice or, or accidental? No, it, it was um, 
deliberate in the sense that these uh, most of them are edited. There's there's two authored ones, um, but most of them are edited, and and the editing process I think is quite nice because it gives me as 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 an editor the ability to connect with various um, colleagues, and there is more flexibility in the way that something is then curated, not just the the peer review of the the rigor and quality, but the curation of the content and the, the, the themes. And so that has been um, really useful in my way of, um, I suppose, leaving a mark as well and, 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 and building the, the recognition and the profile because you have to then be in touch with so many different colleagues and then you have to find reviewers yourself. And so uh, pretty much any book would take a year or a year and a half of just communication where you would have a proposal to an editor, uh, a publisher, you would have to organize um, the different abstracts and drafts and then the peer review and go back and look at the revisions and so forth. So people might think, oh, being an editor, that's like, you know, easy peasy. It's, it's hard work. It's different work to a monograph. And um, a monograph is, is very re rewarding as well which is what we're doing yeah. right now so with you, Martin. I was going to ask you about, yeah, so this is a monograph. That's a, yeah, that's a, mm. an authored book. Mm. Um, but the edited ones have been really useful in just um, building that, that recognition of yeah. that field, especially because it was a, um, a, a very young field that um, just came together. And not so many what people, field do you, are you naming? Urban informatics. Urban informatics, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And others call it urban computing, urban interaction design, smart cities, big data analytics. There's no other fields that are overlapping, yeah. which is completely fair enough. Um, but at the time that, that we started this um, in 2006, it was um, still very, very young and very new, this so idea of combining was, these fields. How did that first book come about? Was it serendipity or was it a very sort of considered decision to try to make that mark? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. The serendipity came from just a random email from a publisher. And I'd actually now go back and think that was probably a mistake because the publisher um, set very high price points that I don't agree with. The way that they um, lacked providing support in the editorial process, the way that um, a lot of it is behind paywall and, 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 and not very accessible. At the same time, I think the, the strategy was to get together um, the best possible people from around the world working on this topic from different perspectives. And I think the, the way that that book was recognized, and lots of people are still referring to it, is because of that array of um, different perspectives from different scholars. I think now... Um, that is, the, is this the handbook, the handbook of, of research, research on, on urban, urban informatics? informatics. Yeah, the, the practice now, and commerce of the real-time city. You were just a relatively new pe uh, postdoc then. Yeah, that was in a way... Uh, I think it already started... Um, towards the, the, the end of my PhD yeah. and, and early with the postdoc that I um, built up a, a larger network of, of connections with of colleagues. And then I had a, a sabbatical very early on, or long PDL again in our term, terminology, in 2007. So QUT was um, uh, generous enough to give me that ability to travel for an extended period of time. And I still remember that I wrote the um, report to um, justify the funding that I received at the time. And it was all kind of relating back to that edited book because of all the different places where I went, I either um, met with colleagues that had 
or were, were planning on making a contribution to the book, or even new ones that I was then introduced to. And so uh, connections to the Architectural League of New York, to Mark Shepard, for instance, in, at, at University at Buffalo, um, to Paul Durish, to a um, whole bunch of different people, Laura Folano, um, I met um, earlier at uh, the Oxford Internet Institute, but then um, Laura was involved in shaping and, and helping um, lead that field as well. So all of those connections um, came about, I think, from, from those face-to-face -face contacts. Right. So good on you for just doing it. Yeah, and then, yeah. So I, I was going to ask you, what's your biggest lesson learned in doing edited books, having done a few? So it sounds like being more considered about your choice of publisher and the um, accessibility of the volume, it sounds like is one of the lessons, perhaps? Yeah, I think I probably underestimated um, the, the range in the quality of publishers that are out there. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe it's actually been... Um, getting more pronounced the way that some have turned into being very predatory, being really out there approaching people and saying, oh, you've just graduated and done your PhD. Can we have your thesis and publish it? And uh, that may not actually be a good thing on your CV to, to have these um, predatory publishers um, just take up work and, and you know run with it. So I think probably it would have been better to... Um, continue with the, the assemblage of the table of contents with, with authors saying this is what we would want to write about. And um, once you, you, you got that, it would actually be quite possible to approach much um, um, higher quality publishers like MIT Press or Routledge or Springer or whoever have you um, and see what they say. And so in, with the other books that we've done, we've done that. But I think I just didn't have that experience at, at the time to just say, oh, I'll hold off with that particular offer because it, it, it sounded like a good offer. And so I think one recommendation is um, to uh, work up a proposal and then see what would be the most appropriate um, publisher also with regards to editorial support and the price point. Yeah. And the, the small print of whether, for instance, indexing is included in the contract because with the first book, it was not included and I had to do it myself. And I remember those three days of my life that I will never get back. Hell. That was complete, <laughs> utter hell. Doing an index and having not, not really proper knowledge of how that is, that is done and, and following all the rules and regulations. And it was a lot of work. Oh, I don't envy you that task at all. Um, just there are a couple of other things I want to pick up on. There's yeah. something I've, I want to just connect back to very quickly, if we can. You know, you talked about your supervisor and having to sort of convince her. So there was it, you. That had wasn't a, my PhD supervisor. That was later on the track okay. um, uh, HR um, relationship. Right. Yeah. But there, you had your own very clear sense of how you wanted to frame your own research and what sort of communities you wanted to talk to and. She, you, she was looking for a narrative, but you talked about your people, places, technology thing. So you seem, you, it seems like you do have a narrative that ties oh, together. Yeah. It's just perhaps not in the way that might look like a narrative within a single uh, strand of work. Yeah, I think academics are always asked to jump through so many hoops, and one of them is funding applications, for instance, or promotion applications, and the formats of those are not always conducive to conveying that narrative. Yeah. So if you're able to 
to find an ability to, to stretch the, the kind of cost set of these forms and applications uh, and fields and stuff and being able to just maybe even have a paragraph there that says, you know, here's my list of publications, but before you kind of go through the list from A to Z or from uh, chronological order, that there is a, a little commentary that says, for instance, for people outside um, human-computer interaction ICT, why is there so many conference papers? Then for people that are not familiar with collaborative work, why is there so many collaborations? Yes. Then for people not familiar with um, book chapters, and, and so you kind of have to, in a way, yes. put it into, into real spelled-out little messages for all these different uh, possibilities. Because I've been burned by all these different sides, right? So you can kind of say, uh, HCI, people will look at it and say, oh, why have you done all these, these book chapters? They're useless. And then people from the humanities or um, um, arts would say, you know, conference papers don't count anything in our world. Yeah. And I think that's really important, that thing of remembering that other people can't interpret your CV just by the publications, that it's not self-evident. And yeah. that we do need to do the work to inter help them interpret it and yeah. put the work in context. Yeah. And I think that also holds for us as writers of reference letters for people. You know, that we can also do that when we're writing reference letters. We can, we can help the committee interpret mm -hmm. the CV list. Yeah. And when we're on, on well, hiring committees as well, you know, sort of asking questions and yeah. just being more aware of our own biases in how we read and in Yeah, and it's true, yeah. Reference lists. I agree. Yeah. You talked about urban informatics and you started up the urban informatics lab. Mm -hmm. You have a brushed steel story. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mentioned this um, earlier this week briefly. So in order to be uh, recognized and established as a research center or research group, there is obviously policies and procedures in place. And at the time, I didn't really see... Um, the value in what would happen if we were given an internal house number. So everyone is given an, uh, what we call an AOU code, an administrative organizational unit, and they all have numbers. And so the application would entail that we were given that number and that we would officially exist. And I thought, okay, um, not really sure if that's any good or any bad, but so I didn't really bother with that particular process for a long time. Um, so we started winning, we, I, I won my, my postdoc grant and, on an ARC discovery, and then we got two linkages, and then we got other funding Which from industry. Which is another grant, particular grant scheme. It's another, uh, that's right. Yeah. So we, we built up momentum, and people came together, um, RAs and PhD students and research interns, and then we had other staff. And so we, this group just grew. And the two things that were really useful is, one, to get um, joint space. So we were not... PhD students dispersed in a, in a PhD student space and then postdocs in an open office and then uh, uh, professorial colleagues in, a, in another part of the university. I um, lobbied um, much more strongly for having uh, a joint space, an open space. So that was really useful to get this Is that cohesion. Is a hard argument to win? Uh, I think we were probably lucky that a, um, a space that wasn't as desirable for anyone else, we really wanted because it was... Um, at QUT at the Calvin Grove campus and it was kind of away from the rest of the creative industries faculty but that wasn't so much of a problem for us because we just wanted the group to get together rather than to be all over the place and then as part of that um, I found some um, some funds to buy a sign and the sign really made a difference I think 
because as soon as there was a sign on the door, people would start referring to that place. It's just naming it, right? It's like naming a street. So you name that group that is sitting there rather than people thinking that's just a loose agglomeration of you know, open office space and, and PhD students. So we got this um, aluminium sign printed with, um, with our logo on it, uh, which is not really a separate logo, it's the QUT logo. We just used the corporate font to put Urban Informatics next to it. So that's also how I bypassed all the, um, the corporate identity police that is, is, is very um, rigorous at our place. And we had an image of um, Urban Informatics underneath that was illustrating the physical and digital layers of the city. So it had this kind of onion layer approach to revealing the, the nervous system of the city, the digital kind of city. And that was installed. And then over the next couple of months and years, people all of a sudden started to refer to us as, oh, that's the urban informatics group at QUT. And then we had recognition through um, the, the space, the, the group itself, and, and the group also identifying themselves and, and introducing themselves as I'm such and such, I'm a PhD student in the urban informatics group. And we would have that as our affiliation on papers. And so bit by bit, and we had a website that um, was, and I think still is, highly illegal because it's not hosted by the university, it's hosted um, outside the university. And so all of these elements were really important to create this brand recognition as well as the kind of sense of belonging. Yeah. And it created a bit That's of an a interesting second walled point. garden. Yeah. yeah. So it was shielding the, also the students and the team members from all the other stuff that was going on around the university, and it enabled them to focus on their work. So again, you started this lab re relatively young in t postdoc terms, mm. you know, and very successful very quickly. In we getting flew grants, under the radar, yeah, um, and and getting people. What were the biggest learning curves in? setting up and establishing that group, not just the sort of physical space and the branding, but actually growing the culture and taking on that leadership role? Um, it, it really helped that we were flying under the radar because um, I think a lot of the um, early scrutiny that, that would have been applied if we had gone the, the official way with you know KPIs and you need to have that many PhD students in year one, and then in, in year two, you've got to double them, or your publication output is this in year one. And so there's... But in order to be named as a separate group? Yeah, if you were to be officially recognized as a, as a research entity, then obviously the university wants to know what are you going to deliver. And so there is... I, th I think the way that we, we flew under the radar was, was useful because we were able to, to grow in a more organic way and to find our, um, our bearings and to be able to say, well, you know, now we're actually able to um, also start new initiatives. So in, in 2008, 2009, uh, J.S. Choi um, suggested that why don't we research food? And I, I remember that meeting where I thought, food? What are you? I, don't, I didn't really initially understand what exactly she was talking about because we were actually at a lunch meeting and so it was confusing. But um, So that Is actually turned into, yeah, it turned into a very serious and, and long-term engagement around urban agriculture, food waste, food in the city, food cultures. And um, also there's another added book uh, around um, human food interactions and HCI. Uh, that's called Eat, Cook, Grow. So I think some of these lessons learned, um, I think now as 
someone who is in a position of, for instance, deciding upon new groups and um, setting up an entity that is supposed to incubate and, and um, nurture some of these groups is to probably give them um, a bit of um, um, extra leash to be able to do their own thing rather than to box them in straight away. And having that uh, transdisciplinary kind of approach to say, okay, we, we have this whole bunch of people from a computer science IT background, and I was act actively looking for otherness. I was active, actively looking for, for difference. So we had um, later down someone uh, from, from an um, uh, archaeology background, and she applied archaeology to existing cities rather than these very ancient cities. That was fantastic to, to research. Then we had someone from urban planning. We had um, uh, an artist. We had... Um, people from a, from a business background. So it's quite a mixed group, um, but not by accident. So I, I actively look for kind of opportunities to enrich the, uh, the diversity of the group. Which, which reflects the um, diversity of your own research as well and the perspectives yeah. that you bring to it. Yeah. And it seems like, you've, if I reinterpret what you've said, you've created a general frame of interest around urban informatics but people have been free to find their own niches within that. You know, talking about jazz yeah. with, the, with the food. Yeah, I'm not necessarily... I, well, I hope that I'm not um, uh, seen as, as prescriptive about it, mm -hmm. so I've been quite... Um, there's another colleague at, at our university, he sometimes refers to it as the Catholic approach. You know, anyone can worship in this church. So it's, it's very inclusive with regards to topics, whereas I actually, and on, on, on the other side, get sometimes disappointed when, when the term gets used elsewhere in a very limited way, in a very narrow interpretation. So there's other research entities that have now popped up around the world, and uh, they also sometimes use the term urban informatics. But then when you see how they describe it or interpret it, it's very much just about a data and statistical analysis on that data in order to understand the city. And I think, yes, that's fine. That's one aspect of it, but I think there's more to it I think um, similarly how community informatics is a very broad field that looks at anything, any of the challenges and opportunities of uh, various sorts of communities and how ICT can play a role. I just think urban informatics, at least in my interpretation, uh, is looking at all the possibilities and all the aspects and all the challenges uh, of, of urban life, of city life, and beyond. I mean, urban, not just inner city, but urban these days is um, a very broadly defined. Regional centers, we consider part of that mix. And again, how ICT can have an impact yeah. and a relationship with that, which is more than just the data aspect. Um, can I just shift on to a different topic altogether? And that's service because you, you uh, walk the talk in lots of ways about community and community building. So you've just recently been chair of the Designing Interactive Systems Conference in Brisbane and you've chaired various other conferences and you're also very active in your local community. Often people talk about the sort of service in terms of um, stealing time and being a negative thing. It, if I just look at your CV and what you do, it doesn't seem like you think of it in that way. No, definitely not. I, I think of um, service not well. It it is a service to the academic community, but it's more a um, another way of doing work and um, being 
allowed in workload allocation models and all that kind of administrative stuff. Being allowed to do activities that are not strictly speaking teaching and learning or research. So, um, and sometimes that can be quite substantial pieces of work, such as chairing the Designing Interactive Systems Conference. I, um, I looked at, at our Twitter account and we created it in 2013 for conference in 2016. So, you know, putting together the pitch, getting it approved, um, talking to different uh, stakeholders and sponsors, putting together the organizing committee. It, yeah, it does take a lot of work. But at the same time, I think there is um, very um, useful opportunities to connect this with the research. So being able to chair uh, designing interactive systems also puts the university in the spotlight. It puts me and my group into the spotlight. It allows people to, to come and, and, and see the space and us being able to, to communicate and connect for the students. It has been a fantastic opportunity to have all these um, senior colleagues with, with, with long-standing careers come to Brisbane and interact with them. I've seen all these selfies that people took with, with Stellark and his, his um, ear on his arm. And so I think it shouldn't just be seen as, oh, it's all this work. Yes, it is all this work. But I always think of it not in this um, very, um, I suppose, in these verticals where you kind of think of it, oh, this is just my research over here and this is my service over there. I, I'd, I'd like to see it in a more connected way where I think that the service actually contributes to me being able to um, excel and as well as accelerate the, the research momentum. And that happens both in the international arena within the academic community as well as what we are trying to do right now locally. Do you have any criteria for yourself about what you decide to say yes to or, uh, or you know, to get involved with? Um, I think I probably said yes to too many things uh, early on. Also because um, when you're just starting off and when you're more um, junior or mid-career kind of uh, researcher, you, you probably don't necessarily are able to gauge how long it would take. And that can be different for different people. So something that would take me um, X number of weeks or months could take someone more or less, depending on how, you know, how versed they are at a certain approach or how much... Uh, um, um, previous kind of um, experience they've had with a task. So for instance, with the first conference, it would probably have been a much um, bigger workload and mental capacity required to do this. Whereas now that I've done, um, Oscar is a social chair and a conference chair, and I've done, I've, I've chaired the um, Communities and Technologies Conference, being in the driver's seat of, of, uh, of this 2016, felt more comfortable. Yeah. It's like you kind of upgrade to different yeah. you know, engines in a way. And so we, um, we managed to, to do this conference with pretty much nearly without a single um, all-hands meeting. Amazing. Which that I actually think it is... a very effective communication then and well, a good team. Yeah, so it's definitely a very good team. But I also um, felt it, it, it was um, really great in, in, in the way that these um, subcommittee chairs and the ones responsible for the different aspects of social and local and the different paper tracks and so forth, that they took responsibility. And I, I, um, the one message I said over and over again is that I'm not a fan of micromanaging. So I give you these kind of work packages and then it's up to you to you know, deliver in a way on those. 
and make connections to others. So for instance, if the program chairs have now decided on the, on the program and they know we need three tracks and these are the rooms, then they need to communicate to the events team and say, we need these room bookings and they need to communicate to the student volunteers and say, we need X many student volunteers. And so in a way, I've, I've tried to set it up much more like, a, like an enterprise rather than this big committee. And it sounds like a similar strategy to how you run the lab as well, where you know, people know what they can do. And yeah, yeah. The, the lab, it probably has a size now where um, it's, it's still very comfortable to have um, weekly team meetings. Mm-hmm. And on, on Fridays, we have usually some sort of seminar, ideation session or workshop. And then people often go um, and, and meet up for drinks afterwards. We have an annual retreat. But we're also now at a stage where our, our boardroom is full. We hardly have any seats left. And in terms of the budget um, for the retreat, I'm also kind of um, hitting a ceiling there. So I think it can't grow much larger other than, than splitting into various subgroups. And in a way, that's what this new design lab entity that I'm setting up is, is trying to achieve, which is more like an incubator of labs rather than a lab in its own right. So I'd, I'd like to continue or enable Jazz to continue with the urban informatics research lab. There's another uh, quite successful research lab in industrial design called People and um, uh, Systems, the Past Lab. And we are building up another one around international development. And then there's various other interests around wearables and media architecture. And um, that together might become a more federated system rather than one mega lab where we have these groups that have their own identity. But all of them, and that's kind of my main ambition, all of them contribute to strengthening the brand recognition. Oh, that's QUT. That's what they do. Yeah. So uh, it sounds like things are really progressing well. And I, I should also just point out that you made full professor. You got your PhD in 2006 and made full professor in... 2014, yeah. 2014. So the arguments that you had to make to people and, and defending your own approach, it, you certainly haven't suffered in any way in, in career terms. No, no. I, I think it, it worked out um, well, but I think it also required QUT to have a, um, quite a growth strategy and to be more flexible and progressive in their thinking. I think my particular case may have been seen differently, say, in, uh, in, in universities that are much more, um, well, I wouldn't say antiquated, but a little bit more conventional and, yes. and, 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 and traditional. That's the word, probably. Traditional in their approach. So, um, as usual, I could go on talking forever, <laughs> but I'm just conscious of the time marching on. Are there any sort of final thoughts? Or... One message that I'm, that I'm very um, passionate about uh, at QUT, and I don't know to what extent that is also applicable at, at other universities, I imagine it might be, is that um, I'm, especially now that I'm a, a tenured professor, I see it not just as, as a privilege, it very much is a privilege, I also see it in a way as my, as my duty to point out the kinds of white elephants in the room, and one of them at our university is that sometimes the um, um, the the dog is uh, the, the tail is wagging the dog. You know the 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 cart is in front of the the horse. In the sense that um, we are looking so often at at bean counting and the way that people go on about both quantity and quality of something rather, but that something never gets discussed. The bean itself is 
left unidentified. It's much more about how many DECRAs, how many publications, how many PhD completions, not what these students are working on, not what the grants are about, and not what's written in these publications and who actually reads them. And so one of the pet peeves I have and one of the kinds of um, messages I bring up over and over again is that we need to first focus on 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 the passion and, and the zest, in a way, of our researchers, what makes them get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go to work. And it's not these bean-counting KPIs. It is the beans themselves. And what I'm missing is the oxygen in the system that allows us to have more conversations about the beans. And I always, when and in, in my position now, I go from one meeting to another, and it's always about bean-counting. I get increasingly frustrated when um, there isn't um, as much space, if not more space, allocated to these other important conversations. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really great note to end on and also encouraging all of us to think about refocusing on the beans and not the counting and have to try to use our positions to argue wherever we can. Yeah, yeah. For a focus on content and, and why we're doing this. Not how many. It has been infectious. So I think other colleagues now have kind of um, um, jumped onto that bandwagon, which I um, really um, appreciate. So you're no longer a lone voice in a meeting arguing these cases? No, no. There's lots of others now that realize that it's really important to actually talk about the real societal problems and issues and opportunities in the world and what we want to do about them, rather than to just have this um, sushi train approach, as I call it, where we sit at this table, the train goes around in a circle, and then you know, once a year we pick up a grant or a publication or student, and it all looks like a, like a mess with all sorts of plates and all different colours um, on our desk. Yeah. Well, thank you, Marcus, for your time today and just just sharing your, your experiences as a professor in the Australian system. No worries. Thank right. you so much, Jolene. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, you can subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. You can also go to the website www.changingacademiclife.com